All right, let's turn in our Bibles now to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. As we continue this study through the book of 1 Corinthians, we've come to chapter 12 and beginning with verse 12. As we've been seeing, Paul was addressing the Christians there in Corinth, and in this section in the chapters 12 through 14, he's specifically talking about the Holy Spirit because it's through understanding the Holy Spirit and what He does and how He does it, and then discovering our gifts and finding out the place that we have within the body, then we can work together and be involved together in the way that God wants us to be. And so last week we looked at some of these spiritual gifts that God has given to people, making each of us individually what He wants us to be. Now in verse 12, He says, For as the body, and He's talking about the physical body here, For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. In other words, he's taking our physical bodies and he's saying, you notice how a body has a lot of different members? You have two hands and two feet and two legs and ears and nose and mouth and eyes and all these things, plus all the internal organs and all the jobs that they have to do. And each of those are individually members, and yet at the same time, they all go together. They all fit together. There's a way in which they need to work together, or there's no body. The body only is as good as its members, and as the members discover and function in the way that they are designed to function, now the body is actually a body. And he's saying, Christ is the same way. The body of Christ, in other words, the church, the the collection of all Christians together is, he's saying, is similar to a physical body. As he's going to say, there are different parts, yet they're all connected and, and vital for each other. I can't, if I stub my toe, I can't go, boy, my toe sure hurts, but the rest of me feels great. When I have a stubbed toe, everything hurts because It's all connected. I can't just cut the toe off and then feel fine. When you cut uh, limbs off of a person, they continue to feel anyway because of the nerve endings. We are designed as one functioning unit. And so the body of Christ, the church, is designed for a lot of different people like us to work together to accomplish what only a collective body can actually accomplish. And so he says in verse 13, again emphasizing the unity, for by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. Now, verse 13 has been a source of a lot of controversy within the body of Christ. I think ironically so. It's a verse that people have written entire books on this verse. But as soon as you start talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, people get nervous, or they get armed for bear, or they get excited, or they have a reaction, because the body of Christ has been divided on its understanding of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, being filled with the Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit. It all kind of dovetails here. I just think it's ironic that A scripture that is given to draw us together 
can be so often used to pull us apart, for churches to split, for people to divide, to have all sorts of arguments over something that the whole point of which is, you guys are all in this together. Now, in order to talk about it a little bit, I'm going to let's get the bigger picture of who the Holy Spirit is a bit and hang with me as we, as we work through this. So this whole notion, well, the Holy Spirit, the Bible teaches Old Testament and New throughout that God is a trinity. There are three members of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are each God. They are distinct, but they're not separate. When one of them is doing things, the other ones are vitally involved in it. We see in Genesis in creation when God says, let us make man in our image. We know the Father was there as our creator, but we also know that Jesus, it says, without him nothing was made that was made. So Jesus was involved in that process as well. And there in Genesis 1, it talks about the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, involved in creation as well. But throughout the scriptures, you have references to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit as being God. Now, if you don't understand that, join the club. God is more complex than, than we are, and as a result, we can't always understand everything, especially when he is talking about himself. When God's describing himself, he's limited to our comprehension ability, and as a result, some of it we don't understand. But the Bible teaches it clearly. And it's not just one God dressing up as three different gods. That's a belief called modalism, where sometimes God appears as a father, sometimes as the son, sometimes as the Holy Spirit. Now, that's something that we could understand, makes sense to us, and as a result, there are some people who buy into that as an explanation. But the Bible doesn't teach that, and that is, I believe, heresy. It's not like, God's not like Clark Kent and Superman, where you never see both of them in the same place at once. And somehow, I never could figure out how Superman could disguise himself with a pair of glasses. I mean, I know people who wear glasses, and when I see them without glasses, I still recognize them. But at any rate, that's not God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit is God as much as Jesus is, as much as the Father is. And Scripture's clear about that. Now, this whole idea of being baptized with the Holy Spirit goes back to John the Baptist, Remember John the Baptist? He was the guy who came to introduce Jesus' coming. He came as a forerunner. He was born a little bit before Jesus, and he was out preaching, baptizing people to repentance out in the wilderness and telling them, there's one coming after me. He's the one I'm really talking to you about, referring to Jesus. Now, this is in all the Gospels, but turn over to Matthew chapter 3, just as an example of the message of John the Baptist, because it's where we get this terminology of being baptized with the Holy Spirit. Matthew chapter 3, and, begin, and look at verse 11 of Matthew 3. John the Baptist is talking. He's been out preaching. Jesus is coming to be baptized by John, and he was baptized just after this. But verse 11, John the Baptist says, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. 
He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Whole books have been written about what the fire is. But we'll leave that for now and just acknowledge that John the Baptist said, Jesus is coming and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus had a lot to say about the Holy Spirit. And turn over to John chapter 14 just for a glimpse of it. And again, we can't do a thorough study of the Holy Spirit, but I just want to want you to get the big picture here. John chapter 14. Jesus was about to go and suffer and die. Disciples were really upset because they were used to Jesus being around, and now he was going to be going. And in the beginning of John 14, he had told them, don't let your heart be troubled. I go to prepare a place for you, but if I go, I'll come again. Then he launches into a discussion of the Holy Spirit. And oh, starting with verse 15 there in John 14, Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, or comforter and exhorter, it's just another name for the Holy Spirit, that he may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans, I will come to you. So John the Baptist says, Jesus is going to baptize you in the Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus, talking to the disciples here in John 14, says, the Holy Spirit's always been with you. He's always been there. The Holy Spirit is God. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. <coughs> the Holy Spirit had been there all through the Old Testament. But he would come and go when it came to relationships with people. David, after his sin with Bathsheba, prayed, Lord, take not your Holy Spirit from me. It would talk about Saul, that the Spirit left him, and so on. So the Spirit's always there, always was. Before you became a Christian, the Holy Spirit was with you. He was the one who was drawing you to God. He was the one who was convicting you when you were doing things that were wrong. So Jesus said, he's always with you, but I have a better deal for you. He's going to be in you. He's going to live inside of you, to be there with you from the inside always. Now turn over to John chapter 20. And Jesus, after he rose from the dead, was in the upper room with the disciples. And in John 20, verse 21, it says, So Jesus said to them again, to his disciples, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. So at this point, Jesus had told them, The day is going to come when I leave, the Holy Spirit's going to be in you, not just with you. Now with the disciples, and this I take it as the time when they really were born again. They received the Holy Spirit coming inside of them, even as the Holy Spirit comes inside every Christian, everyone who gives their life to Jesus Christ. So he had been with them, now he is in them. And yet, you find, turn over, well, just look across the page probably, in Acts chapter 1, right before Jesus went up into heaven, 
Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, Jesus said, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, he was telling them there's something more than just the Holy Spirit being inside you. You need to wait because the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you and give you the power to be my witnesses, give you the ability to be able to share with others all over the world the message that I have given you. And in Acts chapter 2, we see when the day of Pentecost came, in Acts chapter 2, verse 1, it says, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them, so like these flames above their head. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there was this great revival, 3,000 people got saved, okay? So you see the Holy Spirit with you, the Holy Spirit in you, and the Holy Spirit upon you, three different relationships with the Holy Spirit. Now, I think most Christians will agree to all of that. I think almost any Christian admits that, boy, the Holy Spirit was there convicting me even before I accepted Jesus Christ. But when I became a Christian, the Holy Spirit came inside. Something happened that was different. In case you doubt that, there are some people who believe the Holy Spirit doesn't come inside you until you have a certain experience with the Holy Spirit. But the Scriptures clearly teach that the Holy Spirit comes inside you the moment you become a Christian. Romans chapter 8, Paul says, if anybody doesn't have the Spirit of God, you don't belong to God. You're not his child at all. So I think most people who accept the Scriptures would say, yeah, the Holy Spirit comes in you when you become a Christian, even as Jesus breathed on the, Holy, on the disciples and they had the Holy Spirit come inside. But I think also for almost all of us and for almost all Christians, we realize that it's one thing to have the Holy Spirit inside of us. It's another thing to be controlled by the Holy Spirit, to experience His power. The Bible calls this in Acts chapter 2, they were filled with the Spirit. But Paul tells the Christians in the book of Ephesians to be continuously filled with the Spirit, be being filled with the Spirit, literally. Keep on being filled with the Spirit. And so, and we've all experienced it, some more than others, but times when, hey, I'm a Christian, but God's power isn't really flowing forth through me. He isn't using me. He's not working in me. I'm not letting him drive. I'm not letting him control things. And so I think almost all Christians would agree that that's being filled with the Spirit is something that's important to do in addition to just having the Holy Spirit. Now, where the division comes and where the dispute comes, for the most part, is what you call that when you're empowered by the Holy Spirit or when you're filled with the Spirit. And I take it, and there are people who agree with me and people who disagree with me, but because baptism is something that happens as an initiatory act and as a symbolic act, 
I refer to that first time that I was filled with the Spirit as being the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, people disagree with that. It's okay. I won't fight with anybody over it. But at any rate, that's the terminology that I use. And, and I would say that when John the Baptist was talking about what Jesus would do through you and referring it to that baptism of the Spirit and fire, it was a reference to the cloves of fire on the heads of the disciples at the day of Pentecost, and it was that outpouring of power that he was referring to. So I use the term the baptism of the Holy Spirit as being a reference to the first time that you are filled with the Spirit. Now, R.A. Torrey taught on this, wrote a book called The Baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's a great book. R.A. Torrey, Reuben Archer Torrey, was the first president of Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. And then he came out to Los Angeles to become the first dean of Biola College when it was when it was started, it was called the Bible Institute of Los Angeles, and he was the first dean. And he used to speak on this all the time. In fact, when he used to go out for D.L. Moody speaking, he said that Moody always told him either, oh, speak, do your sermon on the baptism of the Holy Spirit, or do your sermon on why I believe the Bible is the Word of God. And Tory complained. He always just had to do those two sermons, because that's all Moody would let him do. But he was known for this and wrote a book about it and argued powerfully for this terminology. However, I saw one time I was reading when he was down in Australia and he was speaking to a group of Baptist ministers. And most Baptists don't like that term, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They believe that's what happens when you become a Christian. But you should call it filling of the Spirit. And so these pastors started to argue with R.A. With Torrey and they said, you know, if you would call it the filling of the Spirit, we would be fine with everything that you're saying. But when you call it the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that causes problems for us. And Tori said to them, he said, well, that may be, but he said, I would rather have the right thing with the wrong name than the wrong thing with the right name any day. And he said, it's obvious. There are some people who are ministering in the power of the Holy Spirit. And there are some people who are trying to do it without the power of the Holy Spirit. And most people have experienced both, and I would rather be the one than the other. Call it whatever you want. And that's the way. I'm, I don't want to argue with anyone about the terminology, but I think if we can agree that the Lord wants each of us to have the power of the Holy Spirit flowing forth in our lives. As Jesus described on the, on the day of the feast, when he, he said, if anybody thirsts, come to me and drink. And as the scripture said, out of his belly will gush forth these torrents of living water. And he says, this he spoke of the Spirit. So God wants all of us to overflow with the Spirit. Call it whatever you want. Now, back to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. People argue over whether this is the baptism of the Holy Spirit that John prophesied about, or uh, it could be, but it, I think it also, if you notice, it's a little different because it's being baptized into the body, and so that's, that terminology isn't used elsewhere. So what he's referring to here is being placed into the body of Christ. So I, I would take this as being a reference to salvation at this point, and I wouldn't Call it the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But either one, it doesn't matter. Don't miss the point. The point is, 
if you have the Holy Spirit inside you, and if you are filled with the Spirit, and I am too, it's the same Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who is doing this. And as he goes on to say, hey, Jew or Greek, it's not about your nationality. He says, slave or free, it's not about your prominence or your social position. We've all been made to drink into one spirit. Drinking into one spirit, what does that mean? It could either mean when the Holy Spirit is poured into us, it could be as the Holy Spirit fills us and overflows and gushes out. Now, there are some commentators who take this verse as a reference to the two ordinances of the church, and they say, the first one, forget about baptism of the Spirit. This is just talking about baptism, period. You become a Christian, then you go get baptized. That's what he's talking about. And drinking of the Spirit Obviously, just drinking that communion as you partake in communion, as you drink of the communion cup, you're drinking of him. That's what like Calvin and Luther, a lot of the old commentaries used to say. Um, most people today don't take it that way. That would be pretty simple. But I, you know, again, if you want to take that one, that's fine too. But, but ultimately, the point is whether it's receiving the Holy Spirit, whether it's allowing Him to flow forth through you, whether it's a reference to the way that He cleanses us daily, whether it's a reference to communion. His whole point, and don't miss it, there's one Spirit. The Holy Spirit wants us to be related to each other. He wants us to be connected, to be depending on each other, and the same Spirit works as He goes clearly in this passage over and over in different ways for different people. But if we divide with other Christians, and especially about a passage like this, how ironic, how tragic, really, when, when the Lord is trying to say, when Paul is sharing, look, you guys have the same spirit. Don't you see that? And we go, well, no, I have the spirit this way, and you have it that way, and you do it that way. And it's Now, let me say further, a lot of the division has been caused by people who think that, for instance, that if you're really filled with the Spirit, you have to speak in tongues. Some people have even said, you're not a Christian unless you speak in tongues. Well, you can't take the Bible seriously and, and hold to that view, obviously, because the whole point of this chapter is, the, the whole point of the gifts is that each person gets the gifts that God gives you for a reason, and we don't all have the same gifts, and therefore we need each other. So it's obviously a mistake to say, if you don't have the gift I have, then therefore you don't count. But again, the whole point is you guys are in this together. You're all a part of one team. You're a part of the body of Christ. So let's read on. For in fact... Verse 14, the body is not one member, but many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where would be the smelling? Now, what he's saying here is, if my body, if my, if my foot started looking at my hand and going, man, you have all the luck. I'm the foot. I'm down here covered up by a shoe. I'm walked on all the time. 
oh, you're, you're in a glamorous position. There's so much that you get to do. You're almost always uncovered, and people can see you and admire you, and they take care of you. And they clip your nails all the time. Mine, only if it starts, if I start bugging them, they'll do it, you know? Or if, you know, they want to have them painted up or whatever, we won't go into that. But it's like, oh, I wish I was a hand. He's going, well, what if the whole body was him? What if all of a sudden you had four hands? Two down on the end of your ankles and two at the end of your arms. It wouldn't be very easy to walk. Your shoes wouldn't fit. You couldn't jump and things like that very well. There's a whole lot that wouldn't work. And so what he has in view here is those of us who look at ourselves and question God's calling and his giftedness, we look at ourselves and think, I'm not much. I don't have much to offer. I, I wish I had a gift that someone else has. Or even we think that we do. We convince ourselves. So often there are people who have aspirations to do certain things and it doesn't work out, and then they just decide, oh, I guess I'm just nothing. I guess I just don't have a place in the body. Hey, the body couldn't work if everyone had the same job. Now, you might feel that, man, if they would put me up on stage at Anaheim Stadium and fill the stadium with people, Oh, I could give a message that would just make Greg Laurie look like a joke, make Billy Graham look like nothing. And I know I would have such power. Big things would happen if they would only give me a chance to use my gifts. Well, everybody can't be Greg Laurie. Everybody can't be Billy Graham. Everyone can't be what other people are. And so often we look at other people's gifts and we want those gifts and we want those ministries and we want to do that. What Paul is saying here is, you know, you need to accept who you are and realize it's a good thing that you are who you are. Don't look and want to be something else. Don't have that desire to be what someone else is. Be who you are. Be who God has made you. Because he goes on to say in verse 18, but now God has set the members, each one of them, in the body, just as he pleased. Do you know that God is pleased where you are right now? Now, there are some people who aren't serving God and, and they feel lousy about themselves because they don't like where they are. They just think, if I was somewhere else, if I had another opportunity, or a lot of people who maybe have had some bad experiences, maybe experienced some failures in your life, or life took some surprising turns for you, and you're thinking, you know, if I had made a different decision and I had gone to school here instead of there, I, had, I hadn't messed up in my life and, and goofed everything up, I hadn't fallen into this sin or done that, then, boy, God could really use me. But, you know, I'm pretty much on the shelf now. God is finished with me. God doesn't put anyone on the shelf. Satan puts people on the shelf. People put themselves on the shelf by deciding that their life is over, by deciding that, well, I don't have anything to offer. Can we believe, can we agree with the scriptures when God says, no, you are exactly where you're supposed to be? God's pleased with where you are. See, if we don't learn to be content who we are, where we are, we'll never be content no matter where we go. 
Nothing that we ever do will be enough. Nothing that we ever pursue will ever satisfy us. Because if we're constantly thinking there's something wrong with where we are, then we don't learn the lesson that God wants us to learn, and that is the lesson of contentment. Paul talks about this in Philippians 4, one of my favorite passages, where he says, I have learned that in whatever state I am, therewith to be content. He said, I've learned how to be abased, and I've learned how to abound. I've figured out in every circumstance how to be satisfied where I am, to be thankful where I am, to accept my present state as being God's will in my life. Now, you go, no way. I got into my state because somebody else really did me in. Somebody else did something bad to me, and as a result, now here I am. You can't say this is God's will. Yeah, I can. God says it is. I believe he is sovereign. I believe he works through everything in our lives. I believe like Joseph did when after his brothers had sold him into slavery, he said, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And I don't care who has messed you over. I believe that you are exactly where God wants you to be. And right now, who you are, where you are, you ought to be pleased. It doesn't mean God's always going to leave you exactly where you are doing exactly what you're doing. But until you will accept your present circumstance and who you are and, and bloom where you're planted, then God can't take you anywhere else because there are unique lessons that he has for us right now, right where we are. And until we learn that and to be content, then what we're doing is saying God doesn't know what he's doing. We're saying God can't bless me. He can't use me because of where I am, whether I put myself here or not. The Bible teaches a God that's way bigger than that, who can be pleased with where we are right now. There's that, I like that line. It's a simple line in a song by Cheryl Crow, but she says, um, let's see, I got digital, I got daily squat. It ain't having what you want. It's wanting what you got, <laughs> And that's a crude way of saying it. It ain't having what you want, it's wanting what you got. But really, that's what the Lord wants us to do as well, to go, here you are. Do you realize that God has allowed you to be right where you are for a particular purpose, for a particular reason? And do you understand that God wants to use you, that he has gifted you, that he has great plans for you that start here, that start now? And God's not stuck, and nothing that you've done has frustrated God so that, oh, man, now it's not going to work. We're really messed up. We got real problems here. Nope, as he says, he put you as he pleases, just as he pleased. And so you're a part of the body, and God has things that he wants to do in your life and through your life, and it's all according to his plan. Now he says in if there were all one member, where would the body be? What kind of body would it be if it's all ears? But now indeed, there are many members, yet one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. This is kind of the flip side of what he was saying earlier. On the one hand, you cannot look in the mirror and say, look at what a mess I am. God can't use me. I'm out of place. I'm useless. I have no purpose in my life. 
But also, the flip side of that is you can't be looking at other people and thinking that they're useless and devaluing and marginalizing them. He goes, you can't look at another part of the body that way. How does that happen? In two extremes, really, and they're both of the devil. On the one hand, there are some people who see their giftedness. They see what they have to offer, and then they go, look at me. I'm a... I'm a head and shoulders above everyone else. I'm better than most people I know. Boy, praise God that he made me this special. It's great. And maybe God starts to use you and you go, I'm good at this. This is great. But pride always comes before destruction. Pride is always something that Satan will fan the flames of it all he can because God cannot use a person in their pride. It says God resists the proud. So there are some people who have great gifts, and they realize what gifts they have. They realize how blessed they are, and they start to relish in their own personal greatness. And ultimately, eventually, they'll hit a wall. They'll come to a point where it's just not happening anymore. And sometimes people will rise to enormous heights and then come crashing down to earth. And you go, what was wrong? God maybe was resisting you. You know, you don't want to be running with God throwing the brakes on. And so the Bible says, humble yourself in God's hand. So there are some people, though, who just give in to pride. And when they give in to pride, they look at other people and think, look at all these losers. I'm better than most of them. They start to grade on the curve. So they put other people down in order to make themselves feel better about themselves. You just need other people just as fans. That's all, fans of you, somebody to do your bidding. But now on the other extreme, there are these people who are like popped balloons who are so, they feel so worthless. Pride is the furthest thing from their minds. But... When you feel really lousy about yourself, you tend to also feel pretty lousy about other people. You start to look for people who are worse than you are to go, well, you know, I'm pretty messed up, but at least I'm not like that person. At least I'm not as messed up as they are. You know, you have people who, I know people who have, you know, been like, yeah, I'm getting pretty, pretty addicted to marijuana it's really dominating my life, but at least I'm not doing harder drugs. And then a while later, they're doing harder drugs. They're snorting Coke or whatever. And they, yeah, I know, I'm snorting Coke, but I'm not, it's not like I'm doing heroin or anything. And then they're doing heroin, but they go, yeah, but I'm not slamming it. You know, I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm eating it, I'm snorting it or whatever, I'm smoking it, but I'm, I'm at least not injecting it. And I've seen people go that whole route, always taking satisfaction that they aren't quite as bad as they could be. And ultimately, that's what we do when we feel worthless, when we feel like we're a mess, when we feel like there's nothing good in our lives. We just start to look in such a, such a skeptical, jaded way at everyone else. And we just begin to go, you know, you guys are awful. You're a mess. Either way, it's a work of Satan that causes someone to either be so proud that they think they don't need other people or that causes them to be so deflated that they won't do anything with their lives and then they 
become negative about other people too. See, what God wants us to understand as his children is that we all have unique value in his eyes, that we all have plans that he has made for us, gifts that he has given to us, but they only work when we learn to be together. They only work as we can work together. And so that means I have to accept who you are and what God is doing in your life, and you need to do the same for me. And we all need to do what we are wanting, you know, called to do, and at the same time, giving other people the freedom to do the same. This is where I think churches can really mess up because there are different churches that have different styles of worship. And you don't find in the scriptures, here's how church ought to be. You know, I mean, we, like at, at, we at Calvary Chapel teach through the Bible. We just go through verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and I love doing that. I think it's a real logical thing to do. But there are sometimes if you go, oh, they do topical. Well, in the Bible, there are tons of sermons in there. None of them are verse by verse. So I can't say the way we do it is the only way. But then there are churches who are very formal. Fancy churches, it's very quiet and somber, and they have liturgy. They do the same thing every time, and you don't dare laugh or, or you know, look around or anything. It's just like, oh, it's the holiness of God. There are other churches that are more casual. There are some churches that are downright wild. Anybody can say anything they want. Just go ahead and shout it out or scream it out or whatever. Swing from the chandeliers, roll in the aisles. Woohoo, it's church. I'm not really comfortable in that kind of environment, albeit, a, you know, it, it is entertaining. Um, at the same time, in a real formal environment, I kind of don't. You know, I, I appreciate God's holiness and in some ways that I might not somewhere else, but it's not my cup of tea on a regular basis. I can take it, you know, once in a while. But how do I look at people who are different than me? And that's the real question. Do I realize that God has different people and they each appreciate sometimes different approaches to the throne of God? Or do I decide if you don't do it my way, then it's the highway for you? You're just plain wrong. And the way we do that with other churches, and we're so divided, and, and we become more defined by what we're against than what we're in favor of, in the same way we do it within a church. Because there are some people who like it one way and some people who like it another way. It, it, even in something as simple as, we have complaints that the sanctuary is too cold and too hot, that the sound is too loud and it's hard to hear. And it's like, what do you do? I mean, how do you handle that? The fact is, we're all just different. And God sees that as a beautiful thing. See, in order for God to show the world himself, it takes a, a broad palette. It takes a lot of colors and hues and shapes and textures in order to all add up to be something that you can go, wow. Look how vast he is. Look how big he is. Look at the variety that is there in the body of Christ. And so it's a good thing that everyone isn't like you or me or whatever. We all have different experiences and different things that we like. I mean, there, last night I sat and watched TV. How many of you watched some TV last night, any TV? Raise your hand. Okay, quite a few honest people. And uh, how many of you watched the Ultimate Fighting Championship? 
It's like a couple of us, three, four of us. Now, I enjoyed it. But for many of you, you would look at it and go, oh my, that's awful. That's so brutal. That's so terrible. How can you, as a pastor, how could you promote? I'm not promoting it. I'm not going, oh, everybody needs to watch it. But don't judge me because I enjoy seeing someone get beat to a pulp. <laughs> and you go, oh, but wait a minute, that's so ungodly. That, how could that paint part of who God is? You ever read the book of Revelation? As Jesus comes back and beats people to a pulp, hey, it all fits. It's a, it's a broad variety of descriptive terms that ultimately paints the picture. It's okay with me if you don't watch it. It ought to be okay with you if I do. And that's the way we should be in everything. We're different. Hey, viva la difference. It's, it's a good thing. Let's not, let's not feel like, oh, I want everyone to be like me. The world would be so boring if everyone was like you. If everyone was like me, it'd be great. But if everyone was like you. But see, that's how we look at it. And that's Paul's point in this whole thing. He goes, don't feel bad about who you are. Don't look at who you are and think that there's no point to you, that there's no purpose for what God wants to do through you. Don't think that you have no gifts and you're just a toe on the body of Christ. No, you have a place. God has designed, and and within you and how he has designed you and where he has put you right now, there's the potential for great beauty. Well, you go, wait a minute. The reason I am where I am is because I've been used and beaten and taken advantage of and knocked down to where I'm just like, I could barely get up in the morning. Hey, you know what? Maybe God has called you to, to get beat up, to learn some sensitivity so that you can reach out to some other people who could use some encouragement. But whoever we are, wherever we are, God has a purpose in all of it. And it's to bring about his beauty. And it's to bless us where we are, use us where we are, equip us to find our place within the body. And we also need to look at each other that way and to discover God's beauty in others, people who are different than we are, and to go, I'm glad you're on our side. I'm glad that you are depicting something of God that maybe I can't connect to or relate to because God's big. It looks like, and, and see, the devil, he doesn't care if he beats you one way or the other. By putting you down or by putting you up so that you put others down, the devil wins either way, he thinks. Ultimately, what do you think was the happiest day in the devil's life? You know, you go, well, maybe the Garden of Eden when Eve and Adam ate the fruit. Probably that was a happy day for him. You know, they say for a boat owner, two happiest days. For the devil, I'm convinced that the happiest day in his life was also the most miserable because he won. He killed Jesus. He killed the Messiah. But now he understands that what he did was save us. By by killing the Lord of glory and then He rose from the dead three days later and could now save us because of what happened. That's why we call Good Friday Good Friday. Oh, you could look at, oh, it's so bad. Jesus died. No, the devil thought it was good because Jesus died. 
But now we look back and go, it was a good thing he died because I would be dead if he hadn't died for me. See, it's not always what it appears to be. It's not always like what you think it will be. And that day in Genesis 3, it was prophesied to the serpent, the woman's seed is going to grow up and someday you'll bruise his heel, but he'll crush your head. He'll finish you off. And the fact is, the devil was finished off the very day when he thought he won his greatest battle. There's a song by Bob Dylan where he talks about a lone soldier on a cross. And he said, you didn't know it, you didn't think it could be done that in the end he won the war after losing every battle. And that's so true. It's, it's not about the individual battles. It's about winning the war. It's about the big picture. Jesus chose to bunt, to sacrifice himself, to go ahead and lose that battle so that he could win the war. And I'm convinced that when we get to heaven and we look at our lives and everything that happened, we'll realize some of the worst things that ever happened to me were some of the best things that ever happened to me. And ultimately, as we're gathered before the throne of God together as a body, we're not going to fight about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We're not going to fight about worship styles or anything like that. We're going to be gathered together and go, I can't believe it. We all made it. We're here. We won the war after losing lots of battles. But here we are, and that's, that's what Paul is trying to say here. You guys understand. You're a body. You're in this together. You're to reflect Christ, and you matter and you are in the place that pleases him, and he has things that he wants you to do right where you are, right who you are. And that starts when you understand that you are specially gifted to him, and then you start to realize, you know what? There are a lot of other people around me who have a role to play in my life. Maybe I shouldn't be so proud, and I should let somebody pray for me. Maybe I should let somebody help me sometimes. Maybe I should allow other people to do what God has called them to do to help me as a part of the body of Christ. It's a glorious thing when it happens. And the more we discover our giftedness, and it's my prayer for our church and for all of us as we go through this passage over the next weeks and, and however long it takes to get through it, that we will discover our glorious place in the body of Christ, find ways of fulfilling what God wants to do in us as we get along together and that we can see the body of Christ just developing into a powerful expression of who God is in a way that will allow people who don't know to realize there's hope. There's a God who loves you. Let's pray. Lord, how grateful we are for what you've done for us. And God, if you didn't say it in black and white, there are many, many days when I couldn't believe that I am in a place that you've designed, that you're pleased with where I am. So often, we all question where we are. It's so good to hear your word saying that you're pleased with where we are and who we are. Lord, help us to discover your calling on our lives, the gifts that you have given us. Help us to believe that you can do powerful things through us. And help us to look at each other with grace and wisdom as we recognize we are all necessary. 
We are all called. We're all anointed by your spirit to do something together. Thank you for helping us to fit. Help us to do what we can to continue to just be who we are together, the body of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.